and say, now I'm going to work on that big project. I'm going to get this thing done. I'm going to, you know, finish that paper or the report or whatever I need to get done right after I do some email, right? Right after I check a Slack channel, right after I clean off my desk, whatever it is, it feels productive. It feels worky. It feels like something that I got to do anyway. But I would argue that that is distraction tricking you into prioritizing the urgent at the expense of the important. This is the Happen to Your Career podcast with Scott Anthony Barlow. We help you stop doing work that doesn't fit you, figure out what does, and make it happen. We help you define the work that's unapologetically you, and then go get it. If you're ready to make a change, keep listening. Here's Scott. Here's Scott. Here's Scott. Here at Happen to Your Career, we often create episodes based on questions we get from our audience. However, there's one question that I never, ever get, and that's, how can I remove distraction? Distraction from achieving what's most important to me, distraction from what takes me away from who I want to be spending my time with, and yet that's what stops so many of us from what we really want to accomplish. Now, who better to answer this question than the person who helped much of the technology industry create so many distractions in our lives? And he did this by writing his first book called Hooked. How to Build Habit-Forming Products. And although that book is fascinating, I was even more interested in the second book called Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. I read it and loved it so much that I bought it for my entire team for Christmas. But here to teach us the difference between traction and distraction is author Nir Al. Welcome to Happen to Your Career. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Glad to have you. Now, can you share a little bit about what caused you to write this book in the first place? Sure. So for me, it was a really a personal challenge in that I had something happen to me in my life that made me really reassess my relationship with distraction. And this was uh, one afternoon uh, a few years ago when I was sitting with my daughter and we had this time scheduled together. And we had this book of activities that daddies and daughters could play together. And one of the activities in the book was to ask each other this question. I remember the question verbatim. It was, if you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? And I wish I could tell you what my daughter said, but I can't because in that moment, some ping or ding on my phone distracted me and I started checking my device as opposed to being fully present with my daughter. She got the message that whatever was on my screen was more important than she was, and she left the room to play with some toy outside. And by the time I looked up, she was gone, and I'd blown this perfect daddy-daughter moment. And so that was really the moment that made me reconsider things. And if I'm honest with you, it wasn't only that moment that I was distracted with my daughter on several occasions, and this problem kind of infected other areas of my life as well. I would sit down at my desk to do some bit of work and find myself doing something else 30, 40 minutes later. I would go out with friends and find myself distracted. And so this problem of distraction infested many areas of my life. And so I really wanted to get to the root of the problem. And so I, I do what I always do. And when, when I have a, a problem in my life, I, I write about it, I blog about it. I read every book on the topic about, about this problem. And every book that I read on the topic didn't go deep enough. It just stopped with some surface level recommendations, principally 
that the technology is the problem. And so I first I did what the books told me to do. I went on a 30-day digital detox. I, uh, I got myself a flip phone and I got myself a, a word processor. They don't even make them anymore. They're from the 1990s with no internet connection. Going way and back. I, yeah, I got it on eBay because they don't even make them. So, so I sat down and I said, okay, now I'm going to do my work. I've eliminated all the modern tech distractions. Here I go. I'm going to do what I said I was going to do. But, you know, there's that book on the bookshelf that I've been meaning to do some research into. And, and let me just clean up my desk here real quick. Or what about the trash? I should probably take out the trash. And I kept getting distracted. And so even when I had eliminated what I thought was the problem, these technologies, it turned out that wasn't the problem. There was something deeper going on, which is why I wanted to understand the psychology of distraction, not just these symptoms of the problem, but actually to understand the disease. I think I cracked up quite a bit as you were describing those type of sections in the book where I sit down and all of a sudden I notice the trash needs to be taken out. And urgently. Yeah, urgently. <laughs> it's been there for three days, however. Yeah. yeah. And I think so many people can resonate with this. And yeah, you had that series of moments, realize that this was pervasive. So I'm curious what did you start to do about it? I, I read through the book and you've got a ton of great recommendations, which we're going to get into. I've got so many questions about those. However, you know, where did this really start after you began blogging and researching this and had the same realization? I had the same realization too, that no area go, or no current resource until yours really goes incredibly deep on this. So I appreciate you doing it for that reason. But what did you start with? In terms of in terms of what I started to fix in my life, in terms of what 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 changes I started to make. Yeah, what changes did you start yeah. to make after the word processor and eBay? Yeah, part of the reason this book took me so long to write was because I was so distracted. <laughs> so I had to figure. It wasn't only until you know maybe the the last two years when I figured out what matters and what doesn't matter that I could actually put these techniques to use. And I found that there are so many myths out there, so many myths, and many of these myths are. You know, maybe they're benign, but some of them really do backfire and make things worse for people. So, for example, do you know multitasking, this idea that we all can't multitask? That's actually not true. We can multitask. Do you know that? It depends how we multitask. Well, you know it because yeah. you read the book. Or, for example, this, this idea of to-do lists, right? We've all been told that to get things done, you got to keep to-do lists, to-do lists, to-do lists, and that there's some magic to-do list fairy that will get everything done for you. And I actually think that most people, the way they use to-do lists backfires and makes them less likely to do what they say they're going to do. So, uh, or, or this idea of willpower, uh, there's, there's debate in the psychology of community whether willpower even really exists. And even short of that, this idea that willpower is a limited resource, we've all heard this, right? Work according to your energy, right? Not according to your time, that time management is energy management. <laughs> BS, it's not true. The studies don't validate this stuff. And in fact, it makes it worse uh, when we believe some of this stuff, like ego depletion, this idea that you run out of willpower, like you run out of gas with a gas tank, so interesting. There's research that actually shows, you know, that we all have heard one form or another of this idea, even if you don't know the term ego depletion, you probably have experienced this, at least I certainly did. I would come home from work and I would sit down on the couch and I'd say, oh, gosh, I've had such a tough day. No willpower left. Give me that Ben and Jerry's. I'm going to sit here and watch three hours of Netflix. And so this, that's the idea of ego depletion, that you run out of willpower, that you, you spend it up like you spend gas, like you burn gas yeah. in a gas tank. You, you, you have none left. And it turns out that there's actually studies that found that ego depletion doesn't really exist, except, except 
in one group of people. The only people who actually do really experience ego depletion, for everyone else, it's a myth, it doesn't exist. The only people who actually do experience ego depletion are people who believe that their willpower is spent. And so the reason this is so pernicious and dangerous is that we conform to our expectations of ourselves. And so when we propagate these ideas, like willpower is a limited resource, like the idea that we hear is so fashionable today that technology is hijacking our brains and it's addicting everyone, there's nothing we can do about it, we are actually making the problem worse because it leads to what we call learned helplessness, that we don't even try and do anything about the problem when we think that there's nothing that can be done. And so that's a big reason why I wanted to fight this. And that's the first things that I started to change was my self-image. That uh, self-image is a consistent theme throughout the book about how we can, we have to reimagine our temperament and our self-image. And then we need to actually reform it. At the end of the book, I talk about how we can reform our self-image to serve us as opposed to having us serve a, a, a self-image that, that isn't helping. Well, I think there's two really, really Actually, there's a lot more than just two interesting facts here, but two that stand out to me in what you're talking about. First of all, if we subscribe to the idea that ego depletion is a real thing, then it really doesn't serve us. It's a lose-lose situation. Mm -hmm. But regardless of whether you know, ego depletion or whether ego depletion is actually true or not, on the other side, if we choose to believe that it's not a finite resource in that way, that at least has a chance at <laughs> serving us positively. So I would rather stay on the side where I at least have a chance versus have totally given up. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, it, there certainly is that factor. And we see this in many, many areas of our life, right? People who say, maybe I'm not very good at this, yeah. or my, I'm lazy, or I'm, maybe I'm an imposter, or I have a short attention span, or, you know, myth after myth after the myth that we, of course, are reinforcing. I think part of the the problem, I think, with productivity techniques these days is that they reinforce a negative self-identity. This is part of why I rail against to-do lists. Yeah. Uh, not, not because to-do lists can't be helpful, but I think the way most people use to-do lists is doing nothing but reinforcing that they do not live with personal integrity. What do I mean by that? So becoming indistractable, the definition of becoming indistractable is that you strive to do what you say you're going to do. You live with personal integrity. You're as honest with yourself as you are with other people. You know, we would never want to be called a liar. That's, that's a, a real hurtful put down. We wouldn't want to lie to our friends, our family, our kids, and yet we lie to ourselves every day, right? We say we're going to work out. We don't. We say we're going to do that big task that we've been procrastinating on. We don't. Every time we don't do what we say we're going to do, we're reinforcing this identity that we're lying to ourselves and that's somehow okay. So when you have a to-do list, like I used to have, of all these things, that I didn't get done, you know, half of my to-do list, even after I had a productive day, I still wouldn't get done everything. And I'd have half of these things on the to-do list that I would just recycle from one day to the next to the next. Every day you're reinforcing this identity that you do not do what you say you're going to do. You're lying to yourself and that's okay. And so what we need to do is to start changing that mindset, to have a, a temperament that serves us as opposed to us serving it by understanding that we can fulfill our obligations to ourselves, not to show off. We're not showing other people what we can do. It's about showing yourself what you're capable of, that when you say you do something, you do it. You live with personal integrity. I mean, isn't that a superpower? Like if we had that skill, imagine how much better our relationships could be, how much better our work life could be, how much more fulfilled we could be, how much healthier we could be if we simply did what we said we would do. Because today, the problem isn't that we don't know what to do. It used to be, maybe before Google, 
You could say, well, I don't know what to do. How do I get in shape? Come on, who doesn't know how to get in shape? It's, it's there. It's common now. sense. It's there. Google it. If you don't know how to do better at your job, it's there. Google it. If you don't know how to have better relationships, this is common sense stuff. The problem isn't that we don't know what to do. The problem is that we don't know how to stop getting distracted from what we know we should do. I am just coming off yesterday where my wife and I went to dinner and we had reserved that time to talk about essentially our next year. And every year we do this thing where we plan out coupons. It sounds silly, I know, but coupons that we are going to give our kids. And ultimately those are for the purpose of forcing us to put on the calendar throughout all the months, like how we're going to spend time with each of our children individually. And it's kind of one of the ways that will remove ongoing distraction as well. But I'm such a nerd about the idea of how to make your values and your time spent align with one another. So the question I have for you is what are some of your favorite examples of how you've seen that happen or how you've done it for yourself? Yeah. So, so the first place to start is to understand what is traction and what is distraction. So the best way to understand what is distraction is to understand what is the opposite of distraction. Most people think for your, think everyone listening, what is the opposite of distraction? Most people will tell you it's focus, right? The opposite of distraction is focus. Not true. The opposite of distraction is traction. That in fact, both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And they both end in the same six letter word, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction is any action that pulls you towards what you want to do, things that you do with intent. The opposite of traction is distraction, anything that pulls you away from what you plan to do. So this is really important for two reasons. Number one, anything can be a distraction. So if you sit down at your desk and you say, now I'm going to work on that big project, I'm going to get this thing done, uh, I'm going to you know, finish that, that paper or the, the, the report or whatever it needs that I need to get done, right after I do some email, right? Right after I check a Slack channel, right after I clean off my desk, whatever it is, it feels productive. It feels worky. It feels like something that I got to do anyway. But I would argue that that is distraction tricking you into prioritizing the urgent at the expense of the important. And that's the more pernicious form of distraction. If you sit down and say, well, I want to check Facebook for a little bit, or let me play a video game. Okay. That's pretty clear. You're slacking off. That's kind of obvious. It's the distraction that tricks us into thinking, oh, yeah, this is important. This is something I should be doing. I got to do it anyway in my day, right? That is the more important and more dangerous form of distraction. Just like anything can be distraction, anything can actually be an act of traction. And so what you've done is, is beautiful in that you've actually planned to have this time with your family. You've, you've done what I call turned your values into time. And so anything can be an act of traction, including the fun stuff right? Yeah. I want yeah. people to put time in their day for social media. Put time in your day for Netflix. If you like video games, put time in your day to play video games. Give your kids time in their schedule to play video games. There's nothing wrong with any of that stuff. As long as you do it on your schedule, not on the tech makers, not on someone else's schedule. So by turning your values into time and holding that time in your schedule, you are making your schedule a reflection of your values, a reflection of the person you want to become. And I think that is such a critically important step and one that very few people utilize. You know, we keep a list of our to-dos, all the output we want, but we don't coordinate that output with the input. What we actually use to make the output is the time, and that time needs to be held on your calendar. 
if I remember correctly, you have a chapter in there on how to raise indistractable children. And you yeah. just mentioned your daughter, and I, I can't help but be curious. What are some of the ways that you do this with your daughter in raising children? My, my wife and I have this conversation constantly, and mm. we've tried lots of different things, some of which have been very effective and some have been horribly ineffective, to put it mildly. <laughs> but I, I'm super curious, how how do you think about this after doing so much of this research and yeah. writing this book? Can, it, can, I, can I ask you first, what didn't work? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, one thing that we thought would work really well, but was just very, very ineffective as a whole was setting aside specific times in the day where our kids could play on devices, you know, you know whether that was, you know, their iPods or, or, you know, watching, watching TV or any number of other things that fell into that category. And what we found is that they would, how do I even describe it? They would want to do that so much that it would derail other things that they were supposed to do or that we were asking them to do or that they wanted to do, but at the time, you know, wanted less than to be attached to the device. So it was, we thought that if we scheduled it really specifically and said, oh, it's from this time to this time and here's your thing. And we saw that actually it was counterintuitively not working for us and our kids. So what we have gone to that has worked far better and partially just from the parental side where we're like, I don't want to, I don't have to tell them no again and again yeah, and again and yeah. again, because that, whether there's ego depletion or not, that gets really tiring and annoying, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? And <laughs> so instead- That's not about willpower. Yeah, that's not about willpower. about your patience depleting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we've gone to this one day a week and it particularly works well over the summer. We just have one day a week where, you know, provided you get all your chores done and you get everything else done that is your obligations or being a part of the family or taking care of the house or whatever else, then you can play as much as you want on that day. And then we just, we never talk about it the rest of the week and we don't have to answer all the questions and we don't have all the, I'm going to say, you know, fatigue afterwards, the coming off devices hangover <laughs> for lack of a better phrase, that we would experience again and again when we had those times set aside. So anyhow, that's a really quick summary of... You know, yeah. And how old are your kids? My kids are... Oh, you would ask that. <laughs> my, they keep changing. I don't... I know, no, right? It's every crazy. Year. Every year, like <laughs> clockwork. No, my youngest just turned nine, and I have a 10-year-old, almost 11-year-old son, and then I have... My oldest is 12, going on 13. Okay. All right. Great. So I have an 11 year old little girl. Yeah. And, uh, some of her first words were iPad time, iPad time yep. and said in a much more shrill voice, I should, I should add. <laughs> so we've definitely been to this problem. And I will say that two things. One, if you think the world is distracting now, just wait a little while. Oh yeah. It's only going to get more distracting, right? So the, it is imperative that we teach our kids how to become indistractable. And of course, one of the prerequisites here is that we have to be indistractable ourselves, that we can't tell our, our kids, stop playing Fortnite while we're scrolling Facebook. <laughs> kids are hypocrisy detection devices. And yes. so if you want to raise indistractable kids, you have to become indistractable yourself. So we actually can raise indistractable kids by using the exact same model. So there's four steps. The first step is to master the internal triggers, to understand what is it that is driving kids 
to use these devices, sometimes to the extent that they distract them. It's the same thing that drives us. We are looking for psychological relief. There's a well-known theory in psychology called the needs displacement hypothesis, which tells us that when we are not getting what we need in the offline world, we look for it online. And so the first step, and this is kind of a longer discussion, we are happy to go there if, if, if you're interested about what kids are missing these days, but there's a, a list of three psychological nutrients that it turns out that kids are deficient in these days. They don't yeah. get enough of it, so they are looking for those things online. And so we have to understand what those psychological nutrients are and make sure that we provide plenty of them offline so they're not so hungry for them online. So that's about the internal triggers. The next is about making time for traction. By the way, these four steps are the same four steps that we as adults follow as well. But for kids, I'll, I'll interpret the, uh, the, these steps for, for children as well, making time for traction, right? So this is about making sure that in our day, if we want to engage in video games or television or whatever it is that we want to engage in, that's fine as long as we do it on our schedule, not someone else's. So here's what we did when my daughter turned about five years old. She was spending too much time on devices that we felt. And so we wanted to sit down with her and we had a conversation just at five years old. She was absolutely capable of having this conversation that we asked her, we said, look, how much time do you want with your iPad? Now, we were expecting her to say all day long, but we, of course, first informed her that there's nothing evil about these devices. We don't want to in, uh, create a generation of kids that, that's technophobic, right? We, their jobs are going to yeah. depend on them being comfortable with technology. We don't want them to be scared of these devices. So we didn't tell her that it's melting your brain. And, and kids can see through that stuff. They know it's not melting their brain. It's pretty obvious. Their brains are fully intact. They're fine. <laughs> So we don't want to scare them with these with these tactics that actually aren't scientifically based. What we want to do is to say, look, the cost of spending too much time on screen is the opportunity cost. It's the opportunity to play with your friends outside. It's the opportunity to be with mommy and daddy. It's the opportunity to do your homework and do other things that you need to get done. It's an opportunity cost. So given that, how much time do you want to spend on this device per day? And so here's what she said. She thought she was getting one over on me. She said two episodes. Now, two episodes on Netflix is about 45 minutes. So I said, okay, fine. By the way, there is not even one study, not even one, that shows that two hours or less of age-appropriate screen time has any del deleterious effects on our children. Okay? Where you start seeing negative effects is in the really excessive use, four or five, six hours a day. That's where you start getting some negative correlation. And so the idea, we have to remember that, look, two hours or less is perfectly fine as long as, as it is age-appropriate content. And age-appropriate just means, you know, using your judgment here. And we have to do that with all forms of media. I wouldn't let my daughter watch just any channel on TV. I wouldn't even walk into, let her walk into a library and let her read any old book. You know, there's lots of stuff that a, a, a child her age should not read <laughs> in a library yeah. and that need parental supervision for. So same rules apply online. So as long as it's under two hours per day of, of extracurricular screen time, not one study has shown any negative effects. So we said, okay, two episodes, that's fine, 45 minutes, but here's the deal. And I think this is, this is where maybe your technique uh, and mine differed a, a bit, is that we said, that's fine, you can have your 45 minutes a day, but here's the thing. How will you enforce that rule? Did you happen to do that with your kids by chance? Or was it you that said... It's time to get off the device. I think we did both. And unfortunately, yeah. we did one first. So the second backfired because it was not set up for success mm. with the first path. 
I see. So I invite you to maybe consider trying this technique. So here's what we said. We said, you come up with how you can stay on track. How will you make sure that you don't spend more than 45 minutes a day with your screen? And she said, well, how about this, Daddy? You know, we, we used to have this microwave that was below our countertop so she could reach at the time. And she knew how to use the timer. She used it for other things. And she said, well, what if I set this microwave timer for 45 minutes? And that's exactly what she did. And today, she actually uses technology to tell her when it's time. So she says, you know, the, she uses the Amazon Alexa and says, set a timer for 45 minutes. She uses uh, on the iPad, Apple has these tools, Apple Screen Time, that tells her when it's time. So the important thing is, it's not daddy that's the bad guy. I'm not the one telling her to get off the device. It's something that she set for herself that tells her when it's time to get off the device because we're not raising children. We are raising future adults. And so what we want to do here is to empower them to make their own choices because if we don't, if we're constantly you know, the police here, we know what they're going to do. They're going to cheat. When they go to their friend's house, they're going to cheat. When they leave the house and go off to college or a job, they're going to cheat. They're going to do whatever they want. We need to help them build these self-regulation skills for themselves by teaching them now how to make sure that they monitor and are able to get off these devices with restraints that they set for themselves. That's a muscle that they can build from a very, very early age. And thankfully, the technology makes it easier than ever. Now, if we see that she abuses those privileges, well, now we have to take a step back, right? We have to say, wait a minute, are you actually ready for this technology? And so this is a question I get all the time. How do you know when a kid is ready for a technology? I think the right metaphor here is a swimming pool. You know, swimming pools kill thousands of children, but that doesn't mean we don't teach children how to swim. We don't go to the other extreme and say, okay, go to the pool here, jump in and let them drown. We make sure that they know how to use the swimming pool, how to swim before we let them have access to it. And so a child demonstrates how ready they are for a technology based on whether they know how to put it away. So if a child can't put away the device to come to dinner, they're not ready for it. If they don't know how to use do not disturb settings when they have to do their homework, they're not ready for it. It's we who pay those cell phone bills, not the children. So we ultimately have the control to say, look, you're not demonstrating that you know how to use this device in a safe manner. And until you know how to regulate yourself, you're just not ready for the device. So that's about making time for traction. The next step is to hack back the external triggers. And in this case, both for adults and for children, we want to remove any of these pings, dings, and rings that aren't serving us. In the office setting, by the way, we can do this with our colleagues. Many of us, you know, the, the number one source of distraction in the office setting, by the way, is not our devices. The number one source of distraction for the average American knowledge worker, 80% of survey respondents said it was other people in the office, right? Through open floor plan offices, people interrupting each other. So there are ways we can hack back external triggers that come from other people. And of course, these external triggers that come from our devices, our computers, our phones, emails, superfluous meetings, all of these external triggers can be hacked back for us as adults and as children. So one of the best things you can do is this rule that we know that in fact, removing anything that interrupts a child's sleep is imperative. That what we believe is that some of the negative effects of technology is not the technology itself, it's what the technology is doing to sleep. It's that kids are going to sleep later and later. It's that they're being interrupted by every beep and boop from their device during the night, and that's interrupting their sleep, which we know for years has negative effects on their psychological well-being, on their school performance. Sleep is sacred. We have to protect their sleep. So that means not only do we have to remove every possible screen for like phones and iPads and computers from their bedrooms, 
Televisions, right? I have yet to hear a good reason why a television should be in a child's room. For and frankly, I don't know why a television should be in an adult's room, for that matter. Uh, the the bedroom should be a sacred space for sleep. We should not be sleeping more with our cell phones. We should be sleeping with our lovers, <laughs> not, not next to our devices. As it so turns we, out, what's that? Yeah, as it turns out, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we can we can remove those external triggers. We ask ourselves a simple question: Is this external trigger serving me, or am I serving it? And if, and if you're not, if it's serving you, keep it. And if it's not serving you, if you're serving it, get rid of it. Right. So hack back those external triggers. And guess what? There's nothing Mark Zuckerberg can do about it. If you change the notification <laughs> settings, they can't turn them back on. Come on. This is stuff anyone can do. And then the last step is to prevent distraction with pacts. And in this case, what we're doing is we're making some kind of contract, some kind of promise with ourselves or with someone else to help us stay on track. And here, ironically enough, we can use technology to prevent getting distracted by technology. And let me give you an example. So one of the packs that we can make, and there's many I talk about, there's three main packs, but one of the packs is called an effort pact, where there's some bit of friction in between you and something you don't wanna do, that distraction. So for example, in my household, we found that night after night, we were going to bed later and later. My wife and I would stay up and we would check emails and social media and we were staying, we weren't getting the quality sleep we know we needed. And so though my, although my daughter had a bedtime, we were being hypocrites. We weren't enforcing our own bedtime. Uh, and so what we did was this, we went to the hardware store and we bought ourselves this $5 outlet timer. And this outlet timer will turn on or off anything you plug into it. What do we plug into it? Our internet router. So every night at 10 p.m., our internet shuts off. And so that's a bit of a reminder. Now, could, could we do something about that? Of course, if our internet shuts off, we can go and unplug it and replug it in. Of course, we could turn it back on. We could find a way to cheat, of course. But that's not the point. The point is that we've added a bit of friction, a bit of effort to help us not do whatever it is that we don't want to do, principally staying online past 10 p.m. Today, actually, you can buy routers that have this feature built right in. So they keep some devices on while other devices turn off. It's a, it's a wonderful tool. And in fact, today, it's conditioned us to everybody in the household knows, oh, internet's going to shut off at 10 p.m., get everything you need to get done because pretty soon it's going to turn off. So in fact, now we don't even really need it anymore because we've used it for so long. It just becomes our routine. We know what to expect. Another type of effort pack that you can use with your kids, it's very effective, is to use apps that help us stay focused. So one app I use almost every single day, my daughter loves it as well, it's called Forest. And here's how Forest works. Whenever you wanna do focused work, you take out the Forest app, you dial in how much time you want to do focused work for. Let's say 30 minutes, 45 minutes. It's wonderful for a writer like myself. It's great in a business setting if you need that, you know, need to finish that big report or project you're working on. It's wonderful for kids for homework as well. And I don't have any financial interest in the company whatsoever. I just really like it. You dial in how much time you want to do focused work for. You hit a button that says plant. Now, when you hit that button that says plant, your timer starts. And this cute little virtual tree is planted on your screen. Now, if you pick up the phone and do anything with it, the little virtual tree gets cut down and dies. Don't kill the tree. Don't <laughs> kill the tree. You don't want to kill the tree. And so it's enough of a reminder. This silly little virtual tree is enough of a reminder to tell you, oh, nope, that's not what I want to do right now. And, and kids get this intuitively. Of course, it works great with adults as well to just remind you, you know, you made a promise with yourself to not get distracted right now, stay focused and do what it is you wanted to do. So it's really about these four techniques in concert, making sure that we can master the internal triggers, making time for traction, hacking back the external triggers and preventing distraction with pacts. 
I appreciate you both indulging me on the the ways to raise indistractable children and layering over the top of that the ways that we can help ourselves too at the same time. One of my other favorite pieces about the book was how you went into such detail and used examples along the way. And you've shared a lot of those with us already, but you mentioned particularly distraction at work just a short bit ago. And I'm curious if you can share a few more of those ways we can be less distracted, particularly as it relates to being at work, where we may not have control over all the pieces in play. Sure, sure. So the first thing is to figure out the ways that we do have control. So the first half of the book is really about things that you can do yourself. So we talked about these four basic steps around mastering the internal triggers, making time for traction, hacking back external triggers, and preventing distraction with packs. Those are all things you can do yourself. And some of them can relate to your, your colleagues and managers. For example, you know, I advise people to keep a time box calendar where we make our, our we, we understand how we are going to spend our time. We turn our values into time, including in the work domain. You know, there's two types of work. We have what's called reflective work and reactive work. And all of us have some balance of reactive and reflective work. Some people have 100% of one or the other. For example, if you work in a call center, your job is 100% reactive. When the phone rings, you pick it up, you deal with the call, you hang up and you wait for the next call, 100% reactive. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, maybe if you're a computer engineer, probably most of your job is reflective. You need time to focus and write code without distraction. Most of us have some mix of reactive and reflective work. The problem is we tend to default towards just the reactive work. We prioritize all the reactive stuff, the emails, the mess the Slack messages, the meetings, and we don't book that time for reflection. We don't book that time for concentrated work without distraction. So we have to make that time in our schedule, protect that time, and then we need to do what's called a schedule sync. A schedule sync is when we show our time box calendar to the various stakeholders in our life. Principally, there's two of them. There's our domestic partners, right? So your husband, your wife, your significant other, showing them that time box calendar and our boss, specifically in the workplace. This is a game changer. This will change your life. This is how we manage our managers. We've all heard this trope that if you want to stop getting distracted, you need to learn how to say no. Ugh, I'm so sick of hearing this. <laughs> it is so hard. How do you tell your manager who's paying your bills, sorry, no, come on, give me a break. That's really hard to do. Instead, you shouldn't be the one that says no. It should be your boss, your manager that tells you what you shouldn't be working on. How do you do this? If you sit down, make this time box calendar, and I'll give you a link in the show notes that I built this free tool. Anybody can use it. You don't have to sign up for anything. It's totally free. I'll give you that link in a bit. When you make a time box calendar, you want to show your boss how you plan to spend your time, okay? And it takes you maybe 30 minutes the first time you do it. Then you update it once a week. It takes you about 15 minutes a week. I, I do this every Sunday evening. It's changed my life. You sit down with your boss and you say, look, okay, here is my week ahead. Here's how I plan to spend my time. Now, over here on this other piece of paper, there's this list of all these other things you asked me to do, and I'm having trouble finding the time to do those things. Now that you see my time box calendar, can you help me reprioritize? And by doing this, by showing them your calendar, you know, very few managers have any idea how you spend your time because they don't want to micromanage you. They don't want to ask you how you spend every minute of your day, but I guarantee you they're wondering how you spend your time. 
So show them, make it transparent, show them how do you plan to spend your week ahead and then let them be the one that says, oh, you know that thing that, that you've got there on a Wednesday at 2 p.m.? You know what? That's actually not that much of a priority, but that other thing on that other piece of paper that you have there of all the other things, can you swap those out? That's much more of a priority. It's a life-changing practice, really a game changer. So that schedule syncing is another way that we can help eliminate distraction in the workplace. Another thing we can do, we talked earlier, I hinted about how open floor plan offices are such a huge source of distraction. And, and so I came up with an idea that I actually got from a group of nurses at UCSF who decided to tackle this problem of uh, medication errors. It turns out that about 200,000 Americans every year are harmed when nurse practitioners give people the wrong dosage of medication or the wrong medication completely, which oftentimes leads to fatal consequences. It's a huge, huge problem. So these nurses at UCSF decided to figure out what was going on, why were nurses making so many mistakes? And it turns out that it was distraction, that on average, a nurse, when they were dosing out medication, was making an error because of distraction. They were interrupted on average 10 times per dosing round. They were interrupted by a colleague during these dosing rounds, and they kept making these mistakes. And the, the real tragedy here is that the nurses didn't even realize that they were making these mistakes. They thought they were doing a great job. It wasn't until sometimes days or weeks later that they realized, oh my God, what had happened that I made this terrible mistake and now someone has these dire consequences because I wasn't paying attention because I got distracted. And of course, we do this all the time. We think we're doing a great job in our, you know, we, we think we're all, you know, we're, we're on point, we're on task, and we don't realize how much better our work performance could be if we worked in an indistractable fashion. So the solution that the nurses came up with was really fascinating. They found a solution that reduced prescription mistakes by 88%, 88% reduction in prescription mistakes. And the solution was not some multi-million dollar program. It wasn't some, you know, fancy technology. It was plastic vests. Plastic vests that these nurses wore, bright red, that said, drug rounds in progress, do not disturb. And when they would put on these vests and send this explicit signal to their colleagues, don't bother me, I'm doing something that requires my focused attention, they almost eliminated this problem. So what can we learn from this? How can we use this insight in our own workplaces? If you work in an open floor plan office, here's what you do. Every copy of Indistractable comes with a cardstock screen sign. It's right in the middle of the book. It's a piece of cardstock. You tear it out of the book. You fold it into thirds. It's bright red. You put it on top of your computer monitor. And it signifies to your colleagues, it says, I'm indistractable. Please come back later. Okay, you can't miss it. And so you're sending that same type of signal to tell your colleagues, hey, look, for the next 30 minutes, 45 minutes, I need time to think. Okay, I need time to do that reactive work. And so that signal, I'm not saying to do this all day. Okay, let's be very clear. You can't shut out your <laughs> colleagues all day long. But for 30, 45 minutes, an hour, two hours a day, you owe that to yourself and to your employer, frankly, to do your best work by shutting out distraction, by hacking back all of those external triggers. So those are all things you can do right now on your own. Now, that being said, I'm not so naive to not acknowledge that distraction is also a symptom of cultural dysfunction. That if your boss calls you at 9 p.m. on a Friday night, is it the telephone that your boss used to call you? 
Or is it the crappy company culture that you work in that makes such behavior okay? Clearly, it's not the telephone's fault. So there's a whole section in the book where I talk about how to build an indistractable workplace. And it turns out that what studies find is that it's not the technology per se. It's that companies that use this technology in a circumstance where the company culture is dysfunctional, where people can't talk about this problem, that is the root cause of the problem. The root cause of the problem is not the technology. It's that we can't talk about the problem in the first place. And I tell you how you can start facilitating that conversation to fix that problem. Nir, I so appreciate you sharing not just so many different examples, but packing so much into a short period of time. Where can people get the book if they have realized, and I hope they've realized, they just have to integrate this into their lives? It changes the quality of life in many different ways to build these types of skill sets, these types of habits, and these type of behaviors. So where, where can people get more of this? I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. So my blog is called nearandfar.com. That's spelled N-I-R and far.com. N-I-R is like my first name, near. So that's nearandfar.com. And if you go uh, to indistractable.com, that's spelled I-N, the word distract, A-B-L-E, indistractable.com. There is an 80-page complimentary workbook that you can download there. We couldn't fit into the books, but it's it's all there for you uh, to help you on your journey to becoming indistractable. And if you do end up buying the book, whether you buy it from Amazon or Barnes & Noble or your local bookseller, make sure you keep the order number because if you enter in that order number at indistractable.com, I'll send you access to a free video course, which will really help you out. It's, it's a terrific course, and that's all available at indistractable.com. Thank you. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, if you already have a good job, but it's not necessarily great for you, then you're going to be excited about what we have coming up on Thursday. This Thursday, I'm going to be sharing a special way to help you really make a change that not only allows you to get even more control over your life, but at the same time, allows you to help really refine and bring into your work what you really need and what creates more meaning, more fulfillment, while still getting paid very, very well, and while leaving behind some of the elements that aren't as fulfilling. And you're going to get to hear the differences between what's considered normal for a career change and what actually happens when high performers, particularly happy high performers, really make career changes, what they do and how they go about it. So tune in Thursday for all the details. Until then, I am out. Adios. Adios.